What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974, 1987, 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. I say when we sell. Hey, 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 I say when we sell. Logan only ninja launches on TFTC. This is a very professional operation. Well, you say that, he just ninja launched on you. Welcome back to the last trade. <laughs> Thanks, Logan. <laughs> uh, very excited for this conversation. We're joined by Gavin Fury from Winstead, a prestigious law firm here in the state of Texas at the cutting edge of regulatory issues and compliance uh, pertaining to Bitcoin and the company's building in the space. This is definitely a fresh perspective on this show, diving into the regulatory side of things, which I know many Bitcoiners don't like to think about, but it's becoming increasingly important, especially considering uh, the landscape that we find ourselves in with the SEC beginning to crack down on a bunch of crypto projects uh, and this SEC and CFTC sort of fighting for ground in this space. Um, but before we jump into the meat of the conversation, Gavin, why don't you just introduce yourself, uh, what you're doing and, and how you found Bitcoin. And then we can talk about a lot of the really cool things you've been doing in the space for, for many years now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, at, at Winstead, I joined them in 2017. So we, uh, it, I sort of started in investment funds. I've been 22 a year lawyer and uh, have also done a fair amount of time working on uh, commodity futures and, and work with the CFTC. Um, and so we, uh, looks like my dog's leaving right now. <laughs> um, so, so, so basically uh, there's a bunch of um, hedge fund managers in Fort Worth. And back in 2017, we were uh, helping them with their own portfolios and allocations to, to Bitcoin and figuring out custody. Uh, and then by 2018, 2019, we were launching funds. Uh, and some of those are registered investment advisors or Texas exempt reporting advisors. So regulated entities and subject to the custody rules. So we had to kind of figure out uh, custody. So it was kind of fun talking, getting on a phone, uh, way back in 2017 with like Wences Cesaris at Zappo and, and others and trying to figure out how we were going to um, get the the investment funds, Bitcoin um, or, or Bitcoin exposure, depending on how they did it, uh, get it all sorted. So, Gavin, does that mean that Wences was part of your like journey to Bitcoin? You were you were just finding out from one of the you know earliest OGs that Bitcoin had value for these reasons? Or did yeah. you get into Bitcoin before that point? Yeah, I, I did get thrown into it. I've, I've been in house for a commodities trader. So I sort of had to deal with all different types of futures and spot commodities and interests outside of just the regular securities industry. So that was part of my part of my job for six, seven years here in Texas. And literally, you know, but the week before I started, my boss said, I got a project for you. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, Bitcoin's a commodity and you've got some work to do. And I sort of, uh, you know, at that point, fell down the rabbit hole in terms of custody and how, how you 
uh, how uh, we could possibly satisfy the custody rule um, and talking with. And, you know. and could you explain the custody rule for, for people who aren't familiar? Yeah, so it, it, it's a um, rule that sort of has an 80 year history, but it comes out of uh, foreign investment advisors specifically registered with SEC. And so it, it comes out with, out of a sort of Bernie Madoff type situation that human uh, um, weaknesses as they are, you generally need to have the, the assets cut somewhere else in a separate location from the person. The, the manager, the third party that's that's looking after uh, your investment portfolio. So with a qualified custodian, uh, and uh, then you have to have transparency periodically into that portfolio, um, and maybe periodic verifications that the assets are really there. And so obviously, there's no rule that gets around straight up fraud like in a, a Bernie Madoff situation necessarily. Uh, but there are technological things, <laughs> proof of reserves, for instance, that um, can can uh, help prove the assets are there. So the rule's been in, in in place for many, many years. In fact, there's a new proposal to try and switch it up now. Yeah, and it's very interesting with Bitcoin specifically because just of the nature of the protocol and the primitives that exist on the protocol that allow you to custody Bitcoin in a very unique way when compared to incumbent financial assets, whether it be stocks, bonds, uh, commodity futures, whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the most interesting things of this particular point in time uh, in the context of regulators trying to understand Bitcoin and Bitcoiners trying to explain how this thing works to regulators is that we have a brand new way to custody a a bearer asset in the digital age with Bitcoin and the way the private public signatures work. And I think that's one of the biggest frictions between the Bitcoin industry and regulators right now is that we're here screaming like, hey, there's a better way to do custody natively on the protocol. Uh, and you want to you want us to do it in this sort of uh, archaic fashion. Uh, as laid out by the rules that were set 80 years ago. And so in your experience, I know you wrote a paper with Caitlin Long and Brian Bishop literally five years ago yesterday that you sent to the SEC trying to explain this. So what has your experience been like uh, from your perspective, trying to get regulators to understand like, hey, there's a new way to do custody with this asset? But, but Gavin, before jumping in, I actually wanted to just take one step back on the custody rule because I think it's important. And at least from our or my personal understanding, the custody rule doesn't apply to spot Bitcoin. It applies to securities. And and if if the, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if that is true, is it partial the confusion the past you know five plus years more related to who wants oversight as uh, we'll, we'll talk about in this conversation, whether it's the CFTC or SEC, or is it more from a just pure understanding because what we're talking about is a commodity, but it's digital in nature. So it resembles a security in the sense that it can evaporate overnight or like it can like just be taken. And then that's where the uh, 
RA custody rule comes into play in this like not fully understanding that this is a digital asset, but it's a bearer asset that, that's similar to a commodity. If you can touch on that before, because I think that sets the framework for like what yeah. the, the letter was sent. Yeah, there we, we had conversations with, with FinHub when it was produced, the Valerie Shirts Panic, Division of Investment Management about how our clients would satisfy the custody rule. And, and there were sort of three big problems that that needed to be sorted out. One was, is Bitcoin funds and securities? Because the old rule applies to funds. So kind of the question is, can you spend it? Sounds a lot like funds, uh, but traditionally commodities have not been um, fallen into that group. So is it funds and securities? That's one problem with that rule. And then another problem is who's a qualified custodian? Is a trust company enough uh, under the definitions there? So that was another um, sort of long-standing question. And there were questions about bankruptcy remoteness uh, even back then. Um, and, uh, and so funds and securities, qualified custodian. The other thing, it has an exception that kind of gets exposed by some of the early Bitcoin trading. So let's say you take your Bitcoin out of cold storage and you um, put it in someone's hot wallet and you transfer it to an exchange or a trading platform to get the trade done. It, the, the digital asset world sort of, at least as things were done, exposes the fact that it leaves the custodian's hands when it goes out of the cold wallet onto some hot wallet for, for the exchange in order for the trade to happen. So there was a, there's a sort of authorized trading exception in the custody rule that says, okay, we can kind of leave the, uh, we can leave the, you know, it used to allow assets to leave that, but that exposes the fact that during that period, there's no protection, there's no custodial protection for the asset. You're exposed to whatever exchange and whatever um, you know commingling is happening there. So those are kind of the issues we were we were dealing with. That last part is so interesting because um, it it kind of shines a light on how with traditional assets that that just wasn't an issue of like the asset leaving the custodian and then being on a trading platform, I suppose that's probably handled with like it, it, some accounting thing of, of it's being lent out from the custodian and it's still technically sitting at the custodian when it's being traded. But in digital assets, there's like a greater level of transparency and an actual physicality in the sense of like where it is, where this asset is sitting at any point in time, it's clearer. And, and that that in a way makes digital assets like a, a, a superior instrument in terms of accounting and trackability and, and all that in terms of the clarity of what's happening at any moment in time than we have had with the traditional asset world. Yeah, I guess another way to say that is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Gavin, but the protocol is the clearinghouse at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fair. That might rub up against some of the traditional securities kind of establishment or rules, but absolutely. That's right. Um. And, and so, so now maybe Gavin, it would be great to hear the story of how you know you you're starting to work with digital assets in, in your capacity as a lawyer. Um, you know, the, your your boss puts this, puts this on your plate, and then fast forward a little bit, you're you're in a room with uh, Tour de Meester, Caitlin Long, some other folks, trying to hammer out what you've learned 
you know, about like, this is how it should be done. And the regulators should be aware of this and how there's a better way. So how did that come about? And and, and what was that, uh, you know, what was that experience like writing that letter? Yeah, so uh, this this 2018, we sort of put together a group. I had been sponsoring with with Winstead a uh, a sort of smart custody workshop that was on at Blockstream that um, that Brian Bishop had been uh, that uh, put together with Christopher Allen, um, who's a uh, a cryptographer that that helped co-author the uh, the TLS security standard. So for, you know, a lot of payments right now still on the internet, uh, he helped co-author that standard. So he was looking into adversaries uh, on uh, for smart custody Bitcoin. And so we were sponsoring that and, and sort of at that event, uh, out of that event came getting to know um, Brian Bishop a little bit, as well as Caitlin Long, um, and Angus uh, Champion to Crespi at, at Ian. He was, you know, then at EMY. So that all uh, and Tour de Meester, of course, was also sort of part of the the discussion. So we 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 were working with Tour on a fund at the time. So so all of that came together with okay, the SEC is you know considering ETFs. This is 2018. Hard to believe that it's still <laughs> still the case right now. Uh, that uh, what do they need to be thinking about? Because if they start treating, you know, Bitcoin in in sort of fungible bulk or or they allow rehypothecation from the ETF or there's no way to receive the actual Bitcoin from the fund, for instance, that would be nice. We we even mentioned that. Uh, And and just understanding that, that there is no lender of last resort in this case. So if you're this was before you know the meltdowns happened uh in other digital assets but uh in terms of you know margin lending rehypothecation there could be a lot of uncovered undetected uncover exposure if if these assets are being rehypothecated and, and bitcoin natively doesn't really um you know you need to have reserves uh to to be able to meet meet uh, your commitments because there is no there's nowhere to print it yeah it's a it's incredible i'm looking at an excerpt uh one of the key points in bold is we believe that digital assets are unique asset class with unique strengths and abilities and then followed by that is as a result of division of labor any economy will over time develop services that it assist savers in keeping their assets secure the institution of third-party custody itself is about as old as civilization with earliest records dating back to 3300 BC. Uh, that was just so prescient, you know, reading that, especially being close to, you know, a day away from five years and still having these discussions and also just debating on custody and having intermediaries facilitate and trusted third parties. Um, given that if, if Bitcoin is to succeed, we're going to have trusted parties across the spectrum and how an economy ends up you know, being created and delivering value uh, across it. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously a lot of the providers at that time were coming at it from a sort of omnibus account point of view. Um, and that from their point of view, they're used to omnibus accounts and it facilitates, you know, sort of intraday uh, off-chain settlement and some other things like that, that we had a big debate back in 2018, you know, are there circumstances in which if you properly disclose it 
or um, in which in which you can and can and should be having omnibus accounts, even though Bitcoin is natively natively segregated. And so we, we were sort of just having to kind of battle with that. And we had some pretty good disagreements about it. Yeah, I think the other one that's most, uh, I don't know if relevant, but really um, hit home was, you know, you guys called out uh, multi-sig and basically one other key bullet point was we should leverage the technology of this asset class to protect investors in ways not previously possible. I thought that was another really kind of um, key point that was recognized so early on. And we're even seeing this today with the ETFs. They kind of hit on uh, the opposite of what you guys described as the right way to create you know, a product for the market. And it's similar to um, Jesse's piece and calling out, you mentioned some of the uncovered calls, but then also just the central points of failure that exist with a single counterparty that we've seen the past, you know, close to 15 years now uh, in this industry. Yeah, one of the big things I've been surprised about, and this was sort of the risks that we warned about is, is people sort of assumed that because it was Bitcoin, you could just, you know, or, or other digital assets, you could just you know, have a books and records that segregates at the books and records level. And then you can keep the, you know, keep the the actual assets uh, or the keys in, in di- different addresses and you can have multiple addresses that suit what you need, but those don't match even even necessarily what's what's a platform asset versus what's a a customer asset. And it's pretty pretty amazing to me that that, that sort of is the was the modus operandi for for many of the exchanges was we'll do everything we need on books and records and then you have a complete disassociation with the actual wallet structure um of where it's actually been kept and that that sort of was extremely you know it led to a lot of the dangers with with wallets being mislabeled and even with auditors uh, coming in and looking at say what was in ftx not knowing what wallet was belonged to what asset, et cetera. But that, that mindset that, that you don't segregate by wallet address was kind of crazy to me. Yeah, it's, it strikes me as a bit of a lag still. We're still living through with, with the digital asset industry as a whole of people are coming in and applying what has worked in the traditional world in terms of all operational aspects, um, custody, accounting, being part of that um and you know as a result of that like people are designing their their systems their custody and how they're accounting for individual client balances um not in line with what's possible with with wallets and digital digital addresses uh and you know it's sort of too bad that like you guys put out this this uh advice in 2018 and and I don't think the regulators are there yet still, you know, five years later um, in terms of understanding that, you know, that, that an example of how digital assets allows a greater level of clarity and, and transparency real time about where the assets actually sit and how that became a problem with the clearing houses example. Um, you know, that, that plays out with custody too. The, we, we have a greater level of fidelity and, and granularity with, um, accounting and, and reporting that's possible here. And people still haven't adopted that as to build these systems in a, in a Bitcoin native fashion. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it's been so, um, exciting and fascinating, like, you know, Gavin reading that and looking at it, 
in Jesse, Marty, and myself, we talk a lot about custody and, you know, the maturation of this market. And we've been looking at this problem for a very long time and whether it's providing services, building tools. And so it, it over time, you know, I think it's a, it's a function of like proof of work and being in the market and recognizing whether it's FTX or seeing products and services that are delivering what the protocol wants. And that makes sense from a long-term sustainability of like securing the asset or building a, you know, foundational business. Um, and so it also makes sense if somebody comes in into the industry from traditional finance or coming in from Wall Street and they have a you know mental model of the world that's different. But what's really fascinating, I'd be curious is like, how did you, how are you able to come to that conclusion so quickly? Because you mentioned coming in 17, this was put on your plates, so you're looking at it, you have to be, I guess, somewhat curious or maybe not curious, but it was your, it was your job so you were forced to do it. But then like to put that together within, let's call it three to nine months, I would imagine was the time frame that it was so obvious that this was the way it needed to be done. Like, can you share kind of some of the, like, uh, to the extent you can, I know it was five years ago, but what was going well, through or was it really the, the support of the team that was, that helped you kind of see that vision? Yeah. Yeah. So when you are, you know, when you're lawyering you and, and you're say you're launching a fund, you, you start with a set of documents that, that you've used before, and then you tailor them for the asset and, and, you know, the risk factors that no one reads uh, are you spend a lot of time on those risk factors, hopefully, um, because uh, you see products, uh, in, especially in other digital assets, have gone full cycle, DeFi funds, etc. Definitely gone full cycle. Uh, and those risk factors become kind of important uh, at that at that stage. So a lot of it was, you know, there wasn't a a place to go on the internet to to pick up really good disclosures about um, about Bitcoin and about the Bitcoin network. Uh, so in a, in a legal way, it wasn't like Coinbase had public filings at that point. So so we or, or anything anyone else. So so we really sort of I basically locked myself <laughs> for three weeks and and wrote a bunch of risk factors for for a Bitcoin fund that we were uh, um, working on. Uh, and part of that, I, I think, was I needed to understand, you know, how the properties of the asset were just fundamentally different and and what that meant, what 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 sort of risks does that create? You know, a lot of the failures we've seen um, in other markets with with the FTXs and Celsius, et cetera, like, you know, those customer agreements sometimes were complete roadmaps to the fact that they were gonna take the assets and, and use them somewhere else. So uh, my journey really was, okay, I need to get involved in understanding the adversary's self-custody. When is it appropriate to have custodians? How is this not centralizing the risk by, by having a qualified custodian creating a honeypot? So we were just trying to figure out all of those, those issues. Yeah. You brought up the concept of qualified custodian. And I think that's been the big topic in the news the last six months with the uh, bankruptcy of prime trust and the subsequent uh, purchase of prime trust by or not prime trust fortress trust by ripple um, and so you had prime trust was a qualified custodian leveraging uh, the nevada uh, charter i believe and then scott purcell same person started prime trust went and started fortress trust and in these two instances that they were qualified custodians they checked the box however it became abundantly it has become abundantly clear that 
they actually didn't know how to secure these assets properly. And it led to a loss of funds for their customers in both cases. Luckily for Fortress, Ripple stepped in and uh, bailed them out. And actually, I don't even know if that's completely uh, across the line yet. So I think that's yet to be determined. But Mm -hmm. I think it gets to the point of, again, this sort of intersection of the incumbent regulatory uh, structure and this new asset and something that Bitcoiners and people that are looking to get into space need to be aware of is, yes, you may have certain entities out there that check the qualified custodian box. But if you actually do the due diligence and look into how they're custodying the asset, in many cases, they're not doing it correctly. So it's really, there's a lot of landmines that exist out there. People um, sort of having uh, undeserved levels of confidence in their custodian um, with this new asset. And I, I guess the question being is like, how do we ensure that, somebody who's checking the qualified custodian box is actually securing and custodying the asset properly. Yeah, that's right. And and because it was all new, a lot of the um, agreements and the systems that everyone was using were completely all over the board. So you had sort of massive people, you know, obviously with a lot of FOMO and, and wanting to just sign any contract that, that came their way to get the, the yields that they could get. And, um, you know, it all played out over not really that many years as to, you know, some of the leverage, some of the subcustodians, some of the, the, those risks. So again, I'm not sure it got a ton of, uh, airspace, but we, we wrote to the, uh, SEC as part of, um, a legal working group I'm part of because wall street blockchain alliance and, and it's a mix of, of lawyers that's been talking to each other every two weeks for, you know, probably the same amount of time, at least four years for me. And uh, we sort of wrote a, a, a list of, of things for the new SEC custody rule, the proposed one. This, you know, they asked, you know, what are some of the things we should be looking at for uh, qualified custodians? So we sort of did um, a little bit of a, of a, of a list. And I think the the problem is just that everyone's doing things in different ways. And it's kind of hard for the SEC as being the, the one that is regulating investment advisors. There's a lot of custodians, traditional custodians that are really upset with the new proposed rule. I think 29 organizations like the um, FI Futures Industry Association and and ISDA and all these large trade associations wrote to the SEC about the rule and said, look, you are in trying to extend this rule for things like digital assets to try and change some of these concepts. You're, you're completely messing up traditional custodianship of other assets. Um, and so um, that that's still that's still playing out. And you can see you know, custodians like, why is the SEC regulating me? I'm, I'm not the investment advisor. And so there's that friction is still there is, is who is regulating the custodians. Yeah, actually, Logan, can you zoom us out? Because I think this is a really uh, important conversation. There's three like key components. If we can kind of dig into there's QC and is it even qualified custodian? Is it even required? Uh, for an RA or individuals, because 
we're talking about spot BTC. If it's a investment fund trading derivatives, it's a different story, but just spot Bitcoin. Um, and then the second part is what to Marty's point is, I think the qualified custody has um, confused a lot of individuals because they hear that term and they think of somebody like a prime trust is dealing is a qualified custodian, but they have the state charter in the recognition of the you know bankruptcy remote, the legal wrapper, but then they outsource the sub custody to an inferior solution versus somebody like uh, a BitGo who has a South Dakota trust charter, but also has their internal world-class custody similar to like a Gemini, right? Gemini has a New York uh, state charter coupled with their, and it's similar to build Coinbase. And so they're very different. And so people, I think, get confused on that. And then the last point is that new custody rule. And I think that's been a conversation. And I initially was very like concerned or skeptical of it as well. But then I, I became a lot less, and you can tell me if this is incorrect, after realizing that this falls under all assets. It's like alternative assets, you know, real assets, uh, real estate, alternative investments. And this is like, a, it seems like a very like gross overreach from the SEC from a like uh, federal level onto state level. And there would be so many people up in arms is much larger than digital assets that I can't imagine it ever gets actually enforced. Um, so I know there's a lot, but maybe like working down, if we can like talk through is QC actually required for spot BTC and then some of the like confusion between QC and custody. And then maybe we can t- dive into like the enforcement and is it actually realistic? Cause I think that's on a lot of people's, minds or they hear about it and they don't really have that like dispelled into those different like uh, cohorts yeah for sure so the let's start with with what's a security and, and what's not a security so so there's kind of two different things going on one is is does this fall under the cftc's jurisdiction does it fall is it a security so it falls under the sec's jurisdiction right so there's that top level discussion or is it some other type of asset uh and then, because frankly, investment advisors, right? They invest in real estate, they invest in artwork, they invest in all kinds of real assets that, that are not secured like securities at all. Um, and so when it comes down to this custody rule, what they've tried to say is it used to apply just to fund, and it still does, because it hasn't. the new rule hasn't come into effect. So this is just for registered investment advisors and any state investment advisors that are subject to the custody rule and some exempt entities are like in texas some some hedge funds are are managers are subject to it the it used to be and it still is funds and securities does bitcoin spend so you can totally disagree about that bitcoin spends its funds if you don't keep it that simple but traditionally commodities were not viewed as subject to the rule so what you have now is a new rule, one of the parts, proposed rule, one of the proposed rules is let's extend this to all client assets. And what's kind of funny is that people didn't notice, but in Dodd-Frank, there was a new provision of the Investment Advisors Act, that, that statute that never has come and been used until now, that says safekeeping obligations of investment advisor apply to all client assets, not just funds and securities. That was part of Todd Frank 12, 13 years ago, right? So, so now it's finally being kind of used. And, and as I mentioned, these 29 uh, trade associations have just written on September 12th of this year to, to the uh, Division of Investment and Management saying, we don't like your rule because your, requirement, your proposed rule 
because you, first of all, you're extending it to things like loans and real estate, artwork, precious metals, physical commodities. And you're trying to, it's the tail wagging the dog. You're trying to redo how the, our traditional custodian models work in those areas. And the irony of this is partly that digital assets are the reason that, that, that one of the reasons the SEC has been trying to grapple with, with the native properties of digital assets and whether, how you bring it into the rule. So, um, and if you take it at one st step further, like we didn't even bring up the fact that they're trying to not recognize the state charters as part of this, right? Is like the South right. Dakota and do they fall under the qualified custody or stripping them of that kind of like um, credential. Right. So, I mean, you can imagine this rule kind of upsets all of these different businesses that work in certain ways. Like the rule says, for instance, the proposed rule says that you must have possession that the qualified custodian must have possession and control, right? So the way they said, you know, kind of for digital assets, they said, okay, we think that possession and control is the qualified custodian must participate in the change of beneficial ownership. So if you take private keys, right? You, you, one of the requirements is one of those private keys or two, depending on how you read the, the rule, it, one one key must the qualified custodian must sign a transaction to participate in that change of beneficial ownership so that creates a bunch of problems even in digital assets right if if uh um you know there's some model where the asset goes to a hot wallet that the custodian doesn't control so so that's that rule is upsetting all these other people where there are other types of assets precious metals real estate where is the qualified custodian participating in the change of beneficial ownership? What does that mean? Why are you making us rethink everything? Uh, so I don't think the answer is as close as people would like. You know, 29 trade associations asked the, the rule to be withdrawn, and they basically said, please take a look at how custody actually works before you come up with a new rule. That's basically what the letter says. Uh, and so... It's it's ironic that 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 digital assets are actually forcing you know well maybe the qualified custodian should in theory participate in the change in beneficial ownership you know maybe they should right and so you know I I don't think we've seen every the longer I'm in the space from writing that letter the more you realize that this is a huge time frame of of change you know so well. I and then that begs the oh, I was going to say that begs the question: Should I mean we've been talking about this in the context of asset allocators trying to bucket Bitcoin into a particular sleeve of their uh, portfolio allocation? Like is, is there something similar on the regulatory side where you just need to separate this from all other assets and treat it completely differently? Yeah, I, I think it does beg the question of what, what the Division of Investment Management will do next. They have the regulatory authority under Doug Frank, Frank in, in my personal opinion. But do they do they have to rethink and say, well, what's custody? what works for custody in, in one asset isn't what works necessarily in another asset? So trying to find a unified rule is, is trying to make reality, 20 different realities fit a rule but it's yes. kind of hard to write that rule sounds like an impossible task yeah 
it, it sounds like the dreamed up solution of a centralized planner trying to come up with a, a unified theory of everything custody for all assets. It's impossible. Well, they did. They did put a lot of time into it, and our conversations with them started six six years ago. And now we're just at the proposed rule stage, getting criticized uh, by various traditional custodians. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, I, I think it does. To answer your question, Jesse, I think it means that uh, rules have to take into account the asset that they're trying to ensure is properly reasonable. Uh, and and I wanted to tease out how um, it, it sort of feels like part of part of what Michael's number two um, point there and, and what you were talking about, Gavin, is that qualified custodians don't necessarily have the, the competencies, the, 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 score, the core skills and competencies for for executing digital asset transactions. Um, and many of them that have like dipped a toe into the space, they are trying to bolt on those competencies to how they've done things for their whole careers, right? Like the Scott Purcell example at Prime Trust, this was just the growth area for a custody business. So they, you know, decided to say that they were, they were open for business to be a digital asset qualified custodian. Uh, and w without really having developed those skills of like, what does it take to be a, a responsible, skilled, knowledgeable, um, a platform for that, uh, and and what are the risks inherent and in all the surface area of attacks that you have to make sure you're accounting for, um, and so like it, it didn't work for Prime Trust and it didn't work for Fortress because they had this sort of bolt-on approach to digital asset custody, as opposed to someone like Bitgo, who has grown up in you know a, a Bitcoin native um, participant in in digital asset custody and has the chops um, to set up systems the right way. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it, it's, a only, it's a real, I was gonna say it's a, it is a big gap in the space from, uh, we had Matt McClintock on, I don't know, Gavin, if you're familiar from Bespoke and he, you know, I, I consider you like top of like your class and what your background coupled with digital assets and similar with him and trust planning, but even at his level, when it comes to trust planning, you have to get the assets out of the estate and going into a qualified custodian. And right now that means giving it up to a third party. And that's the best that we have. Well, what happens if that third party goes out? He referenced, I believe Anchorage, and I know even BitGo being world-class, like what happens in 10 years when you need to pass those assets on at the exchange? You know, the history of the past 10 years hasn't been good for exchanges. Um, so it's a real problem. And just like, how do you actually plan long-term for the transition of these assets into your estate? Yeah. I would just add like one little thing. I think that's driving a lot of frustration within the Bitcoin industry of people who grew up in this space and understand uh, the primitives of the protocol intuitively much better than any qualified custodian does. And in the case of Prime Trust, like they made the biggest Bush League mistake that you could, which is they threw away the private keys that they previously had ownership over and were allowing customers to send yeah. funds to wallets that they did, they destroyed the keys to which is allegedly allegedly but let's let's pretend like that actually happened if that did actually happen like again that's like a bush league mistake that any individual bitcoiner knows like don't don't do that right. the fact that a qualified custodian made that mistake is mind-boggling yeah and in that 2018 letter we actually and this was 
someone else's point, but they actually said, look, you actually need to hire qualified engineers if you're to, to assess <laughs> like the safety of a Bitcoin, you know, and I know it's about disclosure and they're not necessarily, that here's the problem, right? The problem is that the current law regulates investment advisors and there's these rules about qualified custodians and them using them. There's not really in the United States other than these trust companies and a very, you know, one or two federally chartered before that got put on hold. Um, just, just there's not really a comprehensive regime, if you like, for, for regulating custodians. And I know that I can't tell you when federal regulation will, will come, but that, that actually is the part of some of the proposed federal regulation that certain custodians would be regulated um, and, you know, by a federal entity. So whether Isn't that's the right or wrong, um, that's part of the problem. And to Jesse's point, like that you can see it from a regulator's point of view, right? They're like, okay, I know what a trust company is. You go hire a technology company that's totally separate. We'll kind of regulate your you as because we know what you are. And then we'll make sure your contract looks kind of good with the technology company. And that way we don't really have to figure out the technology piece, right? So you can see why under the current law, that's the way they prefer things to go. Yeah, but from a pure, like just pragmatic, logical game, theoretical perspective, it absolutely is insane, just like what we know. But then also like BlackRock is the premier example of this. Like if it's all successful, that means Coinbase holds billions and billions, potentially trillions of dollars that doesn't end up good for anybody. And we've seen this with like uh, BlockFi was a great example of those mismatches on like the liabilities versus, and they were outsourcing, you know, they sent it off to Gemini. Um, but these like custodial agreements, like there's one thing to build it in house and have the competency. And that's already like very scary because you, you know, if you have any breach, any kind of individual inside that ends up going rogue and ideally you have the you know permissions and the ceremonies in place to prevent that. But you still have that over your head and then you extend it by giving up all of that look which you referenced to a contract to a third party now you're hoping to god that they nothing happens with them but they're also holding everybody else's assets and they're generally commingled um it's just not a sustainable pragmatic way to think about how this industry will like grow if it is to become you know one trillion and ten trillion dollars there has to be a better way and and to you guys on the technology front, like one of the questions I the, like the risk factor I had to write back in 2018 was, was, you know, short, the risk of short squeezes in the market. Like what, this is a question to you, like what happens when, uh, you know, a trillion dollars needs to find Bitcoin and needs the actual asset? Imagine what the, you know, the liquidity issues that could play out worldwide. I don't know that to me, not being, you know, I'm just a lawyer, but that seems like that's a big concern. It, it actually is. We just talked about this as far as redundancies, right? Building this space, you want redundancies across bank accounts, liquidity providers, and making sure that you can always source the Bitcoin as the market takes off. You want to be able to never look at a client and say, oh, yeah, you want your exposure and then you're going to have to wait or you have to find Bitcoin. And that will happen. We, talk, I mean, everybody always talks about this. It's like the the mother of all short squeezes when everybody's trying to get through the door and it's like this big. Yeah. And, and Gavin, you're kind of projecting forward the, you know, what, what, we, what we've seen over the last couple of years, three years has been a decline of balances on 
on exchanges. And how far does that go? You know, does that just keep chugging along for another six years and then there's basically no Bitcoin on exchanges and then somebody gets caught in a, in a massive short position and they have to cover and suddenly the price is gapping up because there's no willing sellers. And, you know, the, the price of Bitcoin might at that point be 100,000 and they can't find anybody to fill that amount of, of Bitcoin necessary until, you know, 200,000. Uh, like th that's the those are the, the forces that collide here when you have a finite supply asset that nobody can print more of. And Marty, yet people will continue to speculate against it. Marty is so ready for that in his bones. I every this is a little inside. Uh, every couple of weeks, I get a like eight o'clock at night text. It's like I'm so bullish right now. And one day, the right it, it's going to turn out the price just like rips. And he's like, I told you, I, I felt well. It. Again, this points back to the beauty of the supply schedule. Many people neg it, but it was important that Satoshi set it up the way he did so that the supply could proliferate and you could incentivize people to plug in miners and acquire Bitcoin. But I'm looking at the supply right now. There's 19,490,993 Bitcoin on the market. So we're, we have less than 1.6 million Bitcoin left to be dispersed to the market. And as Jesse mentioned, uh, hardened hodlers who understand the value prop of Bitcoin have been pulling their their Bitcoin off the exchanges. And so the free float of Bitcoin on exchanges between, I believe, one and two million right now, maybe two and three million. And that's not a lot of Bitcoin in the grand scheme of things. And so, yeah, I can definitely see a short squeeze happening sooner than people realize, especially if that trend of draining the exchanges continues in earnest moving forward. And that's like the crazy psychological thing about this as time moves forward we're approaching 15 years since the white paper launched like people fundamentally understand and grok what bitcoin is and what it represents and its potential in the future more and more every day and so they become more convinced in uh their strategy to hodl bitcoin and we've been saying it the last few weeks like this is the first time in human history that individuals have been able to front run wall street and that's going to be a fun lesson to watch play out as Wall Street learning. Like, oh, maybe we should have gotten in earlier. And they're going to be buying at significantly higher prices. Gavin, something that Marty just in what we're chatting about here made me think, like, how have you, um, like, what's your personal kind of perception of the the market and and just seeing it? Like, we, we talk a lot about, like, risk adjusted, you know, getting into this space, whether it's buying Bitcoin, building. It feels like we've just been in this, like, you know. 20 roughly 20k for practically five years it would hit you know top, top tick 20 at at yeah. late 17 and we've done a bunch of stuff between then but you've seen firsthand of people building the space regulation infrastructure liquidity globally like how do you just like it, there's not really a direct question other than like how do you see it um from a fundamentals perspective and what's happened and what the difference is between from 18 or 17 to 2023 going into 2024 and all the things that Marty just referenced with BlackRock and, and the, you know, 19 million Bitcoin sitting um, in people's hands. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about the United States, first of all, you know, uh, again, I'm just a lawyer. So, but <laughs> if you think about, uh, you know, one of the reasons why division of investment management was so slow in the SEC to, or, or, got guarded, if you like, on this, the custody rule updates was that they realized that they didn't quite know what the bankruptcy remoteness treatment was of, or at least they 
they didn't there wasn't certainty in how quickly it will play out as compared to uh like a broker dealer or a commodities a futures commission merchant there's a bankruptcy regimes where kind of for smoothness suddenly these masses of customer accounts can get moved over to a different broker uh and there's the SEC knows what that treatment is. So part of their reticence is, do we understand bankruptcy remoteness? And then also, is it our job? And I think they kind of recognize that, that, you know, that there are other federal regulators, you know, you look at the OCC and the, and the work that Ryan Brooks did before it kind of got put on hold to, to charter, uh, custodians, uh, basically banks that are custodians and then some of the work to kind of stop states uh, being able to charter custodians like that. That process, just talking about the United States, has taken is not resolved and it's taken six years. And during that time, uh, you've had like entities that were very sort of well regarded, maybe not in uh, the Bitcoiners space, but we're, we're, we're large entities completely come and go, um, you know, uh, just just entities that everyone was doing business with outside of, of um, mostly outside of Bitcoiners. And those entities just don't exist anymore. And, and they look like they were ruling the roost for a while. So I think it's a lesson in realizing that the change takes a while. And I, 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 I keep coming back to, I hate it. You know, I, I did, I don't know if Parker was, Lewis was the first person to come up with the gradually then suddenly expression. Do you know, or does he get that from somewhere? Uh, it's a Hemingway reference, isn't it? Okay. It's yes. Hemingway. Sorry. We just yeah. gave my lack of English. Hemingway so saying, uh, how he went bankrupt. Yeah. How do you go? How did you go bankrupt? And he, a reporter asked him that and he answered, well, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so I, I kind of you see we've seen that play out in this space. You know, a, a, a BlockFi, a Celsius, they suddenly grew huge. Even an FTX, they grew huge, and then, for reasons good and bad, just went away over uh, overnight. And so, um, again, in a bankruptcy context, so I think that you you're within the U.S. You you're going to need some more certainty the, and laws and, and, and congressmen probably to come up with some kind of, and the industry, some kind of acceptable regime that gives a bit more certainty um, to regulating custodians, probably, uh, though that may be unpopular, uh, just so there's certainty. Um, and I think to answer your question, like Michael, like gradually then suddenly, you know, if you know, there's a reason why spot ETFs have not been approved just because, you know, and I doubt it's because the difference between futures market surveillance and spot Bitcoin surveillance, the stated reason. It, it's what are we unleashing if we approve one of these <laughs> things? And, and what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin? And do we want, you know, this is a regulator thinking, do we want, you know, uh, um, our country's citizens to have exposure to these, to this asset, you know, and, and, and that's in my view, that's sort of what's happening uh, in, in the reticence to approve a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. With the pretty valid um, excuse of, you know, I, I think it's largely driven by, they don't want 
to to unleash this while Binance is still the dominant player who's like flouting U.S. regulators um, and doing all all sorts of potentially illegal things. Um, I think that's a very convenient excuse that they probably have rallied around as as a reason to not allow it yet. And that that's why I kind of like the building slowly approach that a lot of people in the Bitcoin space have, have used. Very, very sort of steps that seem, uh, uh, you know, just seem slow right, in some ways, but gradual building as opposed to these, you know, companies out of nowhere that come and go within a three-year cycle. Um, and so I'm sort of bullish long-term, long, long term, but long-term might be longer than any of us Imagine. want. So who knows when the suddenly part happens. Yeah, We touched on it last week about private banking, and I, I made this reference. We didn't go too far into it because it wasn't the topic of the conversation, but I feel like we're in an era of private banking because in my mind, all it means is you can fulfill your obligations. Free banking. And, or free banking, yeah. What did I say? Private banking. Yeah, yeah. Pr- banking free banking. Fr- free banking. Uh, but similar. I mean, similar concept, right? Private, free. Like the the idea that there is no Fed to backstop you. And so I think of Binance as just a, a a free banking. Like they're fulfilling all the obligations on their liabilities, and BlockFi, Celsius, and all these firms haven't. And the free market is ultimately like delivering on that. And you reference the uh, evaporating with these firms, and that's the scary part of all of this, is we've seen companies, whether it's just like traditional tech and free money and what it happens to the quick cycle of somebody's life, like in and out, and then Bitcoin and crypto is even faster. And that's what makes us, it's like a catch-22 because people can't get into the space because they're afraid all their money's going to evaporate. And then people come into the space and all their money evaporates. And that's what's like so you know concerning about these ETFs and being centralized is because they don't know that they ever, all they know is being backstopped and the fed saying, here's some, some extra liquidity and there are no bailouts in this space. And, uh, that's part of this conversation. We do it every week. It's like a lot of people are going to get wrecked in this place because this is the first time we're experiencing something of a digital bearer token. And the second it's gone, it's gone forever. Yeah. And the funny, like building on that, the funny thing is like up to this point, since the regulators, seem not to understand what they should be doing and are moving extremely slow. The onus of regulation has been thrust on the free market and like on us as individuals, like on TFTC rabbit hole recap, like we were screaming about prime trust for years before it inevitably blew up. We were screaming about BlockFi, Celsius, FTX even. And so what we've found, like the best regulation within the space has been self-regulating where it's creating informational resources and building a brand and the trust with an audience to say, Hey, I, I like to think that I understand this space pretty well and who's doing custody right and who's doing custody wrong. And that has been the extent of, I would argue the most successful regulation is the self-regulation of educating people about what this is and who they should be doing business with. And I think that's free banking. Like that's yeah. how free ranking exists is like by reputation and where do you take your money and where you don't, because you know that there's a fire, there might be a potential mismatch. One of the provisions we always draft in fund documents is the ability to redeem people in kind, you know, and say there might be situations in when a, a securities portfolio is 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 just you know it, it's a portfolio that we can't recognize on to over a three year period. So we spin off an SPV and then we give it back, you know, so you own the the actual assets through the SPV and then we we redeem in kind, and I think. One of the beauties of the ability to, you know, 
in a product where you can actually obtain, you know, potentially the Bitcoin if you choose to go into an ETF or a fund and you can actually obtain the Bitcoin. There's some complications there, taxes and 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 then custodianship and transfers. And that that to me is like a mechanism of honesty, right? Because you have to have the asset available. And that's, you know, one of the things we came up with in the Texas law that that has come into effect that affects some some of the larger uh, trading entities and custodians in in digital assets is you have to have that asset available um, to 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 get it back. And I think the same thing is true that 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 kind of honesty mechanism is ultimately like a good product design. Yeah. I think that that's part of the like the free banking example here is the, the winners emerge because they're trustworthy, because they've set things up right in the interests of the clients and, and the reputation follows. And with Bitcoin, we have the ability to implement these like these asymmetric um, setups that provide asymmetric leverage in terms of fulfilling custody. Um, specifically what we're trying to do with on ramp, but we've, what we've spent a lot of time setting up, um, multi-institution custody that, that takes Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and maximizes security while minimizing counterparty risk because we have multiple institutions as key holders for the vaults that hold the Bitcoin. And that's not possible in the old world. It's possible in the new world. And in my opinion, it reduces the risk uh, inherent in custody by an, an order of magnitude or, or two. Um, and in that free banking scenario, that proves out over time as a better model for, for, doing, for doing business, for clients to trust, um, because it leverages the technology in a way that you know, holds up the interests of the clients at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's what makes like this whole space so interesting. Whether it's building, investing in it, um, or finding your counterparty, because what Jesse just alluded to, this isn't just tied to on ramp. Like I think uh, Unchained Capital is a great example of when we think about free banking on the lending side and being one of the last lenders, uh, Bitco, another one, and how they collateralize the loans and also how the keys were segregated and always able to fulfill those obligations. Similarly, with their custody product and holding only one key, they can't lose clients' funds. It's, it's, it's impossible. Now, the, the client can lose their funds. They have to hold two of three, but it's still a much better model than holding uh, you know, with a Coinbase or another firm that you're basically trusting unilateral control with. And similar to what we're doing on ramp, the the ability to you know have multiple institutions holding those keys, when you think about it, it just makes sense as a better model when you look at this asset. And what's again most exciting is the incumbents inherently will not um, most of them. I can't we can't it's an overgeneralization saying all of them, but I would say ninety plus percent because we've talked to them. That model is completely antithetical to their whole like being from how they make money to how they think about the their industry and coming into this space. Even some of the best firms of the best names, they would never give up control of that asset. And so from a, just a pure kind of opportunity standpoint of thinking that Bitcoin's going to be here, there's such a white space to create in it because 
again, just talking with Gavin and what we're discussing here from a game theoretical, like logical perspective, this asset can't centralize with large entities because it's a recipe for disaster. And it just opens up so much like, um, you know, opportunity to engineer around it and develop products that just make sense to build that reputation as Jesse's referencing where you cannot mess things up singularly. That's not to say that things can't happen, but it makes it a lot harder than what we've seen the past 15 years. Yeah. The other thing that tech, the, the new Texas law that, that came into effect in September, we kind of Texas Blockchain Council and, and uh, really worked with some of the regulators on and helped on a, a working group for it was just, you know, to your point, Jesse, just the fact that commingling isn't just as something that has to be solved at a books and records level. It needs to be solved at a wallet level. So you, you can't have, um, uh, you know, without proper disclosure, at least, you need to have the um, unspecified reasons. You need to, to have your wallet structure working uh, so that there's no coming with customer funds with platform assets, except in um, limited situations. And so um, the new Texas law has that and has maintaining the customer funds in a way you, 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 you can't maintain them in a way that you can't fully withdraw them. Um, and you also can't use the assets of one customer to secure or guarantee the transactions of another customer. So obviously every law has its, uh, scope and application and questions about who it applies to, but, but, um, that, and then the requirement to have like auditability, you know, accounting standards are kind of still catching up to what works and doesn't work. <laughs> reserves and does it what's its place and what's its function alongside other controls but uh it, it just seems like a good accounting standards are, are critical within the united states that 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 do embrace like the properties of of bitcoin and its audit, auditability um and then its native segregation so to me those are critical yeah I, so I have a, a, a accounting background, and I think it's fascinating how um, digital asset space is still sort of catching up to why audits exist. Um, and, and like, you know, we, we've, we've gone from a, a world where there's no accountability in, in terms of reporting. Uh, and then now, you know, the big exchanges, uh, the, the crypto casinos, are pledging you know, proof of reserves as this great innovation, this great breakthrough that they're going to provide this visibility to the reserves that they have. Uh, when really that's one third of an audit, you know that is that is proof of the assets on the balance sheet, but not taking into account liabilities or or, or um, you know, how the equity plays out there, uh, which is comical comical to me from my accounting background because. It, the whole picture matters, the whole health of the business, the whole health of the balance sheet and the, the other financial statements. It, it, you have to see that all together in order to feel confident that, um, you know, the, this is a, a going concern business uh, and they are sound. You know, so in the example of like Binance, they have implemented proof of reserves. Great. You've got you've got assets, but do those assets come from liabilities? Like, are, 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 those, are some of those borrowed assets that you owe to somebody? We don't know because that hasn't been, uh, you know, a part of what, the, what 
customers demand from the businesses they they work with in, in the digital asset space yet uh, and regulation is still sort of like catching up to that as well in terms of what is what is required of which digital asset businesses um, it's it's all just kind of funny that like there's a hundred years 150 years of learned wisdom about how to keep track of who's a healthy business and not in the accounting and audit space in particular. Uh, and w we still haven't fully embraced that. And, but it's, it's coming slowly. Yeah. Yeah. And those accounting standards probably take two, three years to, to get, to get created. Exactly. And, and, and we're seeing that right now with the, uh, the updated FASB guidance, which uh, I was just digging into this weekend. My latest writing was on that. Um, MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor have been advocating for this for three years, ever since they got into, you know, they went on a, a Bitcoin standard. Um, historically, Bitcoin is expected to be accounted for as an intangible asset, which means that when the price of it goes down, you have to mark down the value of your assets and record that as an impairment loss on your earnings statement, which kills your, your profits. Uh, whenever the price of Bitcoin drops, but you're not allowed to record the, the corresponding rise in price as a gain. So MicroStrategy is carrying a $2 billion loss on, you know, cumulative over the last three years on their, on their earnings statements and balance sheet. Um, and they've been petitioning the whole time for FASB to update the guidance to do fair value accounting, which they are, they have now unanimously said, uh, can happen starting January first, twenty twenty-four, and that's going to be a big a big step forward for accounting of Bitcoin. And MicroStrategy is going to be the big winner in that. Gavin, on the um, one of the things, like personally, and and I think the audience would be helpful is on the UCC ruling of the intangible assets and and where it started with Wyoming and it, and I think Texas being I think probably second and really the adoption of it. Um, can you share any of like the, the recognition of Bitcoin as property and how that was big for Wyoming and where Texas like has adopted that standard and what that means? Um, it, and I guess a little bit of like the background I was listening to, um, it was one of the guys that was familiar with this, I think in Wyoming, and he basically went as far as saying that you shouldn't operate in a state. This was his words. You shouldn't operate in a state that does not recognize the, the UCC ruling as Bitcoin as property. Um, and I didn't fully, I mean, I kind of directly understood it, but it'd be curious if you can kind of like help us understand that to the extent. And I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you did. Extent, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not a UCC expert, but, but, one of the things that the custodians did when they wanted to obtain certainty under the law is they said, uh, I, I'm going to put more or, or asset managers, I'm going to put the asset with a, um, a third party and I'm going to treat it under the UCC Article 8 as like a securities intermediary because I know what happens when you're securing a, um, a, a prop, an interest in in Bitcoin at that point, a security interest. And, and then that kind of got around all of the uncertainties of Article 9. And so really Wyoming was, uh, you know, way out there with, with, with Caitlin Long and sort of saying, well, what is recognizing Bitcoin as property 
you know, obviously you can understand why a state like why Wyoming would, would be um, uh, very in favor of property rights. Um, but also just having certainty in that very boring mechanism that we are subject to every day where, uh, you know, we get a car and it says there's a secured interest on the car if there's, you know, a loan. All, all you know, basic basic principles of, of, of finance, you need the certainty. So Wyoming went out there and, and Caitlin Long and others went to basically war with the Uniform Law Commission uh, and, and the other entity that, it, you know, UCC is like private law. It's like, let's all decide how we're gonna treat this. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we'll come up with the standard, you know, the Uniform Law Commission is not a government entity, and then states can adopt it. And so it's a unique process where you say, okay, state, does the state want to adopt this, this essentially a, a private law concept and say, how do I get a, a proper secured interest in Bitcoin? And do I recognize it as property? And so the, um, Wyoming came up with a law and basically Caitlin and others went to kind of war with the Uniform Law Commission about how they were thinking about things. And eventually there was a big swing internally um, in the Uniform Law Commission and the other entity that, that kind of helps create standards in this private law. And so they came up with a definition of something called a controllable electronic record that, that basically says... Um, how do I get control over the asset? Do I go file a UCC statement? What do I do? And so they came up with a test that basically says you have to have the power to prevent someone else from using the asset and you have to have the ability to avail yourself of substantially all the benefits of the asset. Um, and there's a third um, requirement um, that is escaping me right now, but those there's these requirements that actually fit the way that multi-signature works and digital asset works and is recognizes that, you know, like Marty says, it's to some extent, it's like a bearer asset. So the definitions are kind of hard to understand and they create confusion, but um, it's just a critical mechanic if you're going to be holding Bitcoin, for instance, and you want to secure, you want to get dollars, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, you want to get dollars for, for everyday expenses or, 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 or whatever. And for those transactions to happen, you need this certainty. So you see Wyoming led the way, the sort of people who understood digital assets found their way into those private committees. And then you know, I forget the number if it's 20 some states are, are sort of behind that those laws. And then um, so I, I hope that's answers your question. Yeah, I think that ties into some of the Texas stuff, but I'll let Marty go. But yeah, the um, I think just the recognition like you referenced with the proof of reserves and knowing that kind of like backstory of like Wyoming leading the way and then Texas, you know, starting to adopt some of it and taking further steps with the, the proof of reserves was helpful. Yeah, I wanted to really extend this conversation of how states are going to look at this and try to project forward. Like, Gavin, in your opinion, like, how do you see this playing out in the future? I mean, just to give some context, uh, when the federal government <clears throat> came out and was sort of postured, like, hey, we're going to tell the banks not to bank 
crypto and Bitcoin companies. You had Ron DeSantis stand up in Florida and say, hey, our state charter banks are open for business. If you're a company uh, in the Bitcoin space that needs a bank account and you're within our state, you can use the state charter banks. Um, And it seems like even outside of Bitcoin, that sort of posturing of individual states and their charter banks versus the Federal Reserve System is going to heat up, whether it be um, about the ability to give loans to fossil fuel companies or people beginning to have their transactions censored for doing things that the federal government doesn't like and states saying, hey, we think you should be able to do that. So you can do that within our banking system. Like moving forward, do you see this trend accelerating and the sort of juxtaposition of individual states and what they allow their individual the banking sector within their states uh, to yeah. do business uh, versus the federal government. So, so you have like in Texas, for instance, the Department of Banking came out with guidance that you can custody uh, a bank, a state chartered bank can custody Bitcoin. Uh, but has that really happened at large scale? Not so much. Um, and part of the reason is that that the banking system in the United States is so complicated as to what the state regulator does versus the federal regulators and the fact there's more than one federal regulator. So what the Federal Reserve does and whether or not you can give a state chartered entity a, a, um, a master account to be able to settle more frequently, that sort of thing. Um, there's still a massive dependence on the, the various banking federal regulators and they are um, under the current administration, not uh, open in the same way that that they perhaps were with Brian when Brian Brooks was at the OCC um, to embracing um, banks holding digital assets, and it's in part just because they don't understand it, uh, you know, the risks, etc., and and whether it's con- whether any public blockchain is consistent with safety and soundness principles in banking. That's not something that the federal regulators have even conceded. So you could see some push to private blockchains uh, um, because they they find that it fits into their safety and soundness rules better than they understand with public blockchains. Um, so you're going to see some major resistance without administration, a change in administration, in my view, to at least at the federal level, um, the banking regulators uh, really allowing the industry to move forward in a way that, you know, now even some of the biggest institutions want it to. Yeah, Jamie, Jamie Diamond coin, Marty. Is that the, that's the JD, new thing? JDC is the new BTC. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin, the, the thing you referenced with the state banks uh, and banks in general seems very similar to like the SEC and the ETF. Because I know there's other regulations on the federal level with like custody and the one-to-one really parity with dollars to like Bitcoin being held. And it just feels like a kneecap in of the whole setup. I think what you reference is what, you know, Caitlin and Wyoming have run into with the um, custodia and basically getting access to the Fed window while they can operate at the state level. And that's where they're in their lawsuit. So it sounds like until there's clarity there, maybe it's the ETF and then everything's all, all, uh, all lights green. It, it will be in that kind of like wait and see mode from these larger entities on how they're going to get exposure or allow for exposure from their clients. 
Yeah, and, and there was a, you know, albeit um, skeptical, but there was a, and I forget the name of the, v, the, the venture capitalist, but a famous venture capitalist gave some kind of equivalent of a, a TED talk recently about regulatory capture. Yeah, and early. so he gave the Bill example early. of like, you know, the fact if, if Elizabeth Warren goes after digital assets, for instance, suddenly her list of top 10 donors include the largest digital asset companies. And that that's just that, that you have to understand these dynamics to understand how change is or is not going to happen. You know, actively attacking an industry like writing to Texas about mining and Bitcoin mining, et cetera, um, is, is, has an effect of attracting donors, which has an effect of increasing the, and this is my personal opinion, not, not of the law firm, uh, increasing the, the, the sort of power of, of, you know, in DC of the right people. And so you, you're not going to make change at the speed that you expect if, if there are people that are making sure that their domain remains large and well-funded. Yeah. However, this was sort of the uh, the key insight of Sam Bankman-Fried uh, in in pushing for <laughs> the kind of change that he thought was a good idea. Um, but you know, your point is absolutely right that like as Bitcoin succeeds and Bitcoin companies and Bitcoiners become a more prominent part of the the capital base uh, and and industry um, that ability to exert influence grows uh, in, in DC. And that is a tailwind for better policy over time as, as Bitcoin's mechanics play out and, and hopefully, you know, it becomes a bigger part of can, the asset landscape. Can we do the Bill Gurley route where he said, I was trying to get as far away from DC and let's say, <laughs> we're trying to, we're, let's forget about DC. Let's focus on Texas, yeah. right? You're, well, yeah, and, and that's what, you know, we have, we have a, a law in Texas now that, that addresses commingling and, and making sure funds are actually available in a way that Bitcoin right. actually works. So, so, so that's exciting to me. And that's, that's a great strength of, of yeah. being here. Yeah. And, and, I mean, on the Texas thing, it's not a accident. We're all based in Texas soon to be. One, one, one other individual on this call. Uh, but like, Gavin, like, you know, you, you talked about politics and like how it works and it's been public. Um, you know, Lee was recently on with Nick Carter talking about Winstead and, and TBC and some of that, like to the extent you can share some of those dynamics, like why you think, you know, Texas, Wyoming's also part of it. And there's like this natural kind of inclination for, you know, freedom and, and sovereignty, but like how that ties into also some of the work that's being done, you know, on the political side, the mining, like just if you could share any of that dynamic, because I'm personally as a native Texan, very interested and just excited that like have led this way. Um, it feels like it's not going anywhere. You know, we have the bullion uh, depository up in, you know, North Austin that sits there. And I think it's the only state sovereign bullion depository. So we're heading in this right direction. And so we think about building a business, like it makes sense to be here. Um, but you're at the forefront of it, sitting in there. I'd be curious to kind of hear like what's going on and how you think we got here and, and where we're going. Yeah. So uh, when um, some of the early events that I that I attended, obviously, were um, like that that consensus event was pretty big. That 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 uh, back in 2018, 2019, and 
Um, I remember seeing Gideon Powell, um, who is uh, does a, a lot of work in Bitcoin mining in in Texas. You know, stand on the stage in New York with eight thousand people and just said, "Look, Bitcoin's coming to Texas," and and talk about it. And it seemed like a really typically brash and bold and and kind of wonderful <laughs> moment. Uh, and then, you know, that was all before all of the changes with, with China and, and a lot more Bitcoin mining to coming to Texas and creating an environment that, that supports mining where there's this kind of exchange with the, the energy grid um, to try and stabilize the grid and this unique ability of miners to, to, to switch off at, at peak demand times. That, that, that's a whole nother unique part uh, of of texas and i think that you know i'm i'm still on my calls with with you know with the wall street blockchain alliance in new york uh you know new york dc lawyers uh for the legal working group so i can keep up to speed and and we can exchange ideas on on kind of legal issues and there's been several weeks when they've just said look texas it's all about texas this week like what's going on in texas because <laughs> There, there's so much activity around mining that obviously Marty and y'all can speak to really well, but that's also fantastically uniquely Texas. Yeah, and I think just bringing the mining aspect into this really adds like a layer of complexity for regulators, right? Because you have this digital bearer asset that many people view as money, some people view as property and a cruise in value. And then you have this connection to the physical world, which manifests via the mining industry, which is very energy intensive and figuring out how to separate the, the bearer instrument from the mining activity and like, how do you tackle this behemoth that has been thrust on the world is again, something I think slows down the process on the regulatory side. And um, I think really points to why you're seeing states leading the way, particularly here in Texas, because Texas understands energy um, obviously, we have ERCOT, which is very unique within the United States, and it's becoming abundantly clear that Bitcoin mining is an additive, positive, um, positive value add to the grid system, and, and that's why they're moving first. And we're seeing this begin to happen in other areas like Tennessee and Appalachia, where the TVA is beginning to realize that Bitcoin miners are helping out there. But yeah, and then, that's been my theory for a while is that states are going to lead the way, particularly in the mining industry, um, the energy rich states that really understand intuitively how the energy sector works and how you pull molecules out of the ground and turn them into electricity that allows you to turn your lights on. They're going to understand this quicker. And that's actually uh, pulling this into the broader conversation we've been having for the last hour and a half almost is that it gives me a lot of comfort knowing that these states are leading the way here and hopefully they can create the precedent that the federal government can say, all right, maybe you guys got this figured out. We won't get too involved with it. Yeah. And there's real, there's real money and recognition. Uh, we're long overdue for, we got to get a, a, you know, Gideon and, and our friend Griffin Haby, mm -hmm. maybe we could do a double on the mining side here in Texas. Um, if you know, we talk a lot about meetups and in, in Bitcoin and getting together. I think Houston meetup probably is one of the most special and different because when the market in the the um, I don't even know if this is politically correct, but our friend Griffin Haby will say uh, Chexit happened uh, as the miners were leaving China and heading to Texas. Houston that that 
that between Houston and Midland and the amount of native Texans that recognize, oh, there's no such thing as stranded energy and just fully embracing it, not even fully understanding that like, oh, I need to hold this long term. It's what I can transition physical oil and gas into this thing that I can get dollars for. The second they heard, it, I was like, oh, game on. And I've never seen it happen that quickly. And then that transition translates to politics and all of it because of the majors show up to these meetups. They're still there. We know that they're looking at multi-sig. They're looking at mining and all the things. And so that like entrenchment, to Marty's point, just sets the foundation for this not to leave and then to be like ripe for kind of innovation and continue to grow independent of anything at a federal level because now you're messing with actual individuals that are paying taxes to the to the state. Yeah. And, and Marty, I, I don't think it had ever really hit me before you just mentioned. Yeah, I, most people probably don't even know that, that there are three grids in the country, uh, in the continental U.S. There's there's the West, the East and Texas. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's it. And because of that, because Texas has its own grid and has has to balance and, and deal with you know, grid stabilization issues on its own, that that becomes a. Uh, a more pressing issue for Texas specifically to solve. And so Bitcoin mining becomes a, 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 a solution that makes sense quicker, right? And is more quickly embraced as part of how that problem is solved. And so I, I, I never really put two and two together before that, like beyond the, you know, uh, seasonality and, and energy mix that, Texas has and the history that Texas has with energy, there's this this pressing need to, to solve the decentralization that Texas has with its energy grid. And here comes this decentralized um, energy s- solution that, uh, that can be a part of that. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also kind of, I, I just love going to see like a psycho facility that like, you know, Gideon built or someone else built and actually see how, how it works. And, and, and I still don't know much about the stranded gas and how, you know, that gets turned into the electricity that feeds the, the, the units that are right there, but that's. Yeah. I still think that the most uh, badass video of, of Bitcoin mining I've ever seen was, was posted by Marty. Uh, And it's a shipping container in the snow at night. Uh, with these machines whirring away and then the camera pans outside to, you know, a flare right there uh, on the oil field. And it's, this is how it happens. This 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 translation of that stranded energy in this remote and for you know, hostile environment into energy in, in a you know, digitally connected world. It's wild. Yeah. Not, now you guys got me getting all nostalgic about great American <laughs> mining, but uh... <laughs> No, it's beautiful too when you see like particularly upstream on an oil and gas well pad, like the visual, like the instant visual satisfaction of turning on. So Gavin, you asked like, how do you actually produce the electricity? It's just generators. You bring them on and you pipe the gas that would have been going to a flare stack to the generator. Maybe if it's a bit dirtier, you got to scrub it up first before you throw it through the generator. But in simple terms, you're just diverting that gas from a flare stack to a generator producing electricity, then mining with it on the back end. And so you have that direct efficiency gain with the reduction of flare and actually getting value out of that gas that you were just literally setting on fire moments ago. And then to your point, like how do you produce the electricity? That's another thing that I'm very confident about is that 
Bitcoin mining is going to create the incentives to have better generators at the end of the day, because uptime is of the utmost importance. So when you talk about like the positive externalities that emanate from Bitcoin mining, whether it be behind the meter to do some load balancing for the grid or upstream to do flare reduction, it's going to create these crazy efficiencies in many different areas. And that's just on the mining side. We're not even talking about the digital asset that creates capital efficiencies, that creates efficiencies in terms of sending money globally, like the, the fractal nature of how Bitcoin improves systems in the physical world and the digital is is pretty insane when you sit down and really begin to understand what's happening. And then it's global, like we know Latin America, Middle East right now, but to Jesse's point about uh, the GAM video, I think of when you reference that, I think of the, the China stuff like there was a two that ring out where it's like a village in the middle of nowhere with the water using it into like this weird like in the jungle small generator yeah in the jungle and that's like making more money than they probably would make it in that local economy and then the other one was just like when we think about anybody ever banning or all the stuff with bitcoin it's like it's china and they still have whatever percentage of the hash rate and then they had these like modular setups where they have like spotters to look when people are coming and then they just like literally close the gate on the you know the truck or however it's set up and then you just take off and you go to the next location it's like there is no stopping any of this it's just you either embrace it or you don't yeah and and you guys got me excited about um what like gridless compute is doing in in africa of implementing infrastructure in places where they haven't had a grid because there hasn't been an economically viable business case for for installing energy production but now there's Bitcoin mining. And so you've got all this hydropower in, in, in parts of Africa that you can set up a, a, a micro hydropower um, energy producing unit. And, and for now, the bulk of that energy is going to Bitcoin mining. But now there's energy in that location. And so if industry wants to set up there and say, well, we'll pay you a little bit more for that energy that you're now producing, um, they can. And then you're bootstrapping um, industry and economies in a place that hasn't had that catalyst before. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, and I think one of the you know this is where like the boring stuff working to regulate <laughs> is important because you know Texas, circle here. Texas, <laughs> just, Texas just came up with a you know a tax incentive for using flared gas for for on-site bitcoin mining and 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 so there's not you know reducing taxes so that sort of stuff is important <laughs> to make it's, it it's essential that 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 adds a massive tailwind to what is a good economic force and it should be how you know states especially we talked about how texas has this particular need to incentivize this this solution for grid st stabilization and that's how you do it and states can lead the way in incentivizing these things that are good for their energy system and the whole economy of the state uh, and texas is leading the way because it has the greatest need for it yeah it, it just reminded me of like gavin and you know jesse and i like building this business you come across different individuals and i reference mcclintock in that same spectrum on the legal side where it's always fascinating to have like an expert but then an expert that's curious because that's when you like mirror what their personal interests and then the curious and then they find it and you find like just world-class operators and individuals and thinking about winston and what you just referenced like a is there even a would you 
like top five, you guys have to be there in like legal firms in the in the world that understand this space. Uh, partially because we're still so early, but that's that's not. It's also indicative of like what you guys are doing. But then two is like, how much does that have to even do with being in Texas? Like, could you have been able to operate or have this like free ranging thought or taking on the clients that you do if you were based in I don't know, California? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I do love the fact we were like 300 lawyers at, at Owensted. And, and so it's not like we have, you know, 10, 15, 20 people sitting around doing only digital assets. How we do have a lot of people working on energy and a lot of people working on real estate, a lot of people working on construction. And all of that is, is, you know, the stuff of, of Bitcoin miners. And so, um, I like that. I think we're, you know, that that places us well. And then probably, you know, there's plenty of, you know, crypto law firm uh, practices that are, you know, more focused on Web3 and things like that in other parts of the country, um, you know, in, in, in Silicon Valley and then in New York and D.C. So I do like the the kind of unique um, Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin centric uh Practices, you know, obviously projects come in the door that are, are, are other things when you have 300 lawyers. However, that's that's it's always centrally been, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining that keeps us keeps me busy outside of straight investment fund launches. Yeah, Bitcoin seems already hard enough from a regulatory and legal perspective to manage. I can't imagine having a thousand cryptocurrencies and how do you think about <laughs> custody and securities and what's a token and, and all the other stuff. Right, exactly. I mean, that gets to an interesting point I'll just touch on briefly, but I, I think that's another thing people don't understand that Bitcoin's native SIG, or excuse me, native multi-SIG properties are sort of unique to Bitcoin. Like you can't do that with Ethereum and many other the popular cryptocurrencies. Um, which I imagine sort of muddies the water when you're trying to create regulation around this, because it's, even within quote unquote crypto, Bitcoin is very different from a primitive perspective to the other protocols. That's actually a really great point, Marty. That's where I think like we end up, you end up seeing qualified custody and, and arrangements or opinion letters around, you know, multi-sig and some of the stuff we're doing in multi-institution probably quicker than we, we would initially expect because it's uniform to it's applicable to any any custody arrangement any exchange any new business that would do it versus what we talk about here of like if you're building you know a crypto exchange or custody arrangements around it it's all pretty proprietary to the to the um, infrastructure provider or the third party you're opting into and so it's a lot harder to like create the right framework so you can actually get that legal qualified custody wrapper around the actual underlying technological um you know physical custody yeah it's it's probably also you know it's it's the regulators understanding uh and you know the the nuances of even what bitcoin is versus other digital assets like that that's that's a hard that's still a that's still not easy to to achieve because they, they have their own interests and their own people giving donations and their own, you know, so, so that's complex. And then, um, yeah, the work that y'all are doing to, to help everyone understand. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that sometimes in, in the regulation, you know, to make things happen, you have to sometimes 
uh, you know, have strength in strength in numbers. So I think there's times when you need to, your interests are aligned and times when they're not. So. <laughs> and we want to be respectful of your time. I know we've gone a bit over and you are an extremely busy lawyer. So, um, you probably need to get back to your, to your job, but before we wrap up, I guess just to tie things together, moving forward, what should our audience expect? from the regulatory perspective, from your opinion? Like, is this gonna to continue to move as slowly as it has? Do you think the regulators are gonna overstep? Do you think we have some time to really educate them? How should people be approaching the particular problems that exist uh, from a regulatory and compliance perspective? Yeah, so you have to be realistic about making sure your business model works with the current laws in order to have success. And sometimes that might mean being more focused in what you're doing and staying that way for a while. So that's probably the biggest lesson because, you know, it changed the whole gradually, then suddenly it, you know, six years talking about the custody rule and we're still at a proposed rule um, stage that change happens you know, <laughs> it, it happens slowly and there's a lot of interests in DC to make sure that, frankly, coins that could be censorable are a little bit more attractive to to um, federal regulators in some ways. Uh, but understanding the, the security risks of that and the implications and, and Bitcoin's unique properties, in my, this is all my personal opinion, are, are you know, absolutely critical. I just think that don't expect the custody rule to come into effect tomorrow. Don't affect, expect that the regulation, that, that federal regulation, it will come. It's just a question of when that actually solves who's looking after and regulate actively regulating spot um, Bitcoin custody and spot Bitcoin trading. That will change. But um, I think we've seen it takes, it takes a long time and there's going to be a lot of businesses that go full cycle in that time if they don't build slowly and, and uh, well. Sage advice. Focus. Focus is good. Move slow. Do <laughs> things the right way. In the meantime, uh, us in the industry will be self-regulating and calling people scammers and trying to herd people towards the, the good actors in the space, which are hard to find. There's a lot of noise out there. Michael, Jesse, anything to wrap up with? I just want to thank Gavin for being gracious with his time and coming on. There's a lot of information. This is a, an, an awesome show, I think, to look back on or as an evergreen to just talk about where we're, where we're at, uh, where we, we came from, where we're at, and then potentially where we're heading. So appreciate it, Gavin. Thank you. Yeah, there, Great there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Bitcoin podcasts, but very few of them have on like lawyers who know what they're talking about. Uh, and can really dig into the law. So for the listeners who made it this far, I hope you guys enjoyed the, the you know, <laughs> rolling up the sleeves of a, of a seasoned Bitcoin lawyer here to, to really show us the ropes. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you, Gavin. That's all we got this week. We'll be back next week. <laughs>